I need you to fill in the gap for me tonight. I need you to pick up the slack for me tonight. I'm counting on, I'm counting on our army, apostolic, revival-minded youth, our army. I'm counting on you to go to war for me tonight. Amen. Brother Goff, we love you. I want you to come take your liberty tonight. And just do what you feel on your heart. Give us the word of the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. It's so good to be in God's house this evening. I appreciate what I feel in His presence. It's real. Amen. It is so real. It is life-changing real. Hallelujah. I am so thankful for the presence of God that we feel and for those that are here tonight. Amen. I tell you, I don't know what your needs are, but I can tell you from the Word of God, what God has placed upon my heart, there are needs that will be met tonight if you will let Him. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. I believe there's some specific parts. If you will let God just minister as He wants to and let Him have His way, and if you will just push everything of life that's bothering you and, and distracting you, and if you will allow God to reach into this service, He's been trying in worship, and as you've been yielding your heart, God will reach down and make a difference in this very service tonight. Hallelujah. Thank you, Bishop, for this opportunity to be able to break the word. And I want to jump into it. We have a lot of ground to cover. And I thank you for this opportunity to be able to deliver the word. And it's such an honor to be able to come and present the word to the church family. Amen. We're going to miss Bishop while he's gone. And uh, we're going to have good church, even greater church while he's gone. We're going to come back with some revival in our hearts and allowing us to be changed by the Word of God, by an anointed man that's going to come in and deliver the Word, amen, the next several weeks. Hallelujah. I'll be reading a familiar passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 14 is where we will start. My, my. Verse 14, it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Amen, amen. If you could lay your Bibles down, I want to deliver the word that God has placed upon my heart, a heart exclusive unto God. Hallelujah. A heart exclusive unto God. If we can talk to him, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Mighty God, can we give the Lord a hand clap of praise tonight? 
Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Wonderful Savior. Hallelujah. Amen. You may be seated. I have a lot of ground to cover, but I also want to be sensitive to the Word. And we will go as far as we can tonight. But I believe God is, as I said before, wanting to help someone tonight. Amen. God was setting the parameters in this passage of Scripture of the conduct of the message that the Apostle Paul was giving in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. And it makes an emphatic statement um, collectively. If you bring it all together, you're not going to be able to stumble your way into living for God. You're not going to be by accident that you're going to find yourself walking into heaven. It is not going to happen just by circumstance of, well, somebody else told me about Jesus Christ and I believe in his existence and thus I'm just going to be one of those that gets put in heaven whether I really wanted to be there or not. That is not the case in living for God. You see the Apostle Paul and Bishop even alluded to it this morning. I had it in my notes and I just smiled as he began to talk about the things that the Apostle Paul went through. In the very first part of this verse of scripture in verses 4 and 5 it talks about the things that the Apostle Paul went through. It was no light affliction that was upon him, but they were heavy, heavy afflictions. And even one of them would have been a life-changing uh, event that would impact us, that we would look back and say, God brought me through it. But the Apostle Paul begins the name one after another after another, and he says, this is what I went through. And that's what the world places upon you. It then progresses in verses 6 through 8, that it's by, you understand, you'll see in, by, and as. And I've said this many times, but it's how God will get you through your trials. Or in verses 6 through 8, that's exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. And then in verses 9 and 10, leading up to our text, it's as, and how God translates that trial to your benefit. And more importantly, it's to show his strength to his people. It's not just to you alone, but so that you can have a testimony to give of those around you. So we see that the Apostle Paul went through these trials, and he did not, did not do it on his own. He was not in this by himself. There was a trial, if you could say, of his life, and there were many of them stacked one upon another. I was reading through some historical documents the other day, and I ran across some writings, across some writings and it was by a Roman author. He was uh, a, a lawyer. He started out as a young man, um, as a lawyer, I think around the 18 or 19 years of age. And, he, and in history notes that he has, I think, roughly 257 letters that have been preserved from his lifetime as a Roman. And there's one letter in particular that I want to draw our attention to and be able to speak to it. You won't find it in, your, in the scriptures, but I'll reference it as from the historical documents. But in talking about the Romans, they were not particular about all of the idols that you had as long as you ultimately worshipped and pledged allegiance to Caesar. They had many gods. They had many um, aspects and deities that they would worship. And they built a pantheon. A house to worship all the idols of the Romans and those that worshiped along from the people that had been captivity, brought into captivity by the Romans. So you had the Roman gods, 
And then you had all of those, the people that had brought in, they brought their gods as well. And so they said, hey, put them here in the pantheon, which is the hall of gods. And the highest form of worship was the state, which was embodied in the person of the emperor, which was Caesar. And the Roman Empire was facing a contagion that was going rampantly through their lands. And I'll give you the timeline of when this was happening. This was happening approximately 100 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was a young man that wrote this letter, and if you could say it in terms, he was not in elderly years. He may have been in his 30s or 40s that he was penned these letters, this letter that I'm going to reference. And there was this contagion going through, and it was all of these people that were refusing to bow and worship unto Caesar. And this one Roman governor, his name was Pliny the Younger, has a letter that was sent to the Roman emperor and stating that he had found a way to deal with these people who were professing, professing to be Christians. And what he did was, he said, I found an effective method. And what I did is I placed an image of the uh, Caesar in front of them, and I placed the other gods as well. And then we went and had incense, and we had wine to drink, and we had um, uh, uh, words that we would repeat and chant one after another. And if they refused to do those acts and pledge their allegiance unto Caesar, we would give them a second chance. And if that didn't work, we would give them a third chance. And then if that didn't work, they would put them in prison until they could be judged. And so they had the opportunity to participate or not participate. They were given the opportunity to recant Jesus Christ, and then they were allowed to go free. The names of the Christians, ironically, were turned over to Pliny the Younger, the governor, turned over to him in a letter format, and someone had went through the land writing down the names of Christians. And so he went and he began to target these people that was under his jurisdiction. It was an anonymous letter of all the Christians' names that they could find. And the problem that got the attention of the Romans was their idolatrous temples were nearly empty in all the cities and towns across the countryside. And it was the pressure that was placed upon the Christians that reinvigorated the people to worship the Roman state and their idols. Ro uh, the, the Roman uh, Pliny the Younger began and penned these words after an interview with the superstitious, superstitious Christians, as he called them. And he says, but they declared that the sum of their guilt or their error only amounted to this, that on a stated day, they had been accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn among themselves to Christ as though he were a god, lowercase g, is what Pliny wrote, and that so far from binding themselves by an oath to commit any crime, their oath was to abstain, abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, and breach of faith, and not to deny trust money placed in their keeping when called upon to deliver it. And when the testimony was concluded, the ceremony, I'm sorry, was concluded, it had been their custom to depart 
and meet again to take food, but it was of no special character. And what we see is, he then follows that statement and says, and they ceased their practice with just a slight hand of opposition. You see, the governor Pliny, he lauds his success to the emperor by saying there were people on that list that had been put on that list 20 years ago and were just waiting for the opportunity to recant Christ and step away. But they were willing to blend in and be called Christians on the list in name only. But when it came time for them to bow unto Caesar or unto their service unto God, Jesus Christ, whom they worshipped, they chose to recant and go back and worship Caesar. This was men and women alike that cursed Jesus Christ. And he says, and now our temples are full. And what he describes is the great success. People are in the pantheon worshiping our idols. And the people that serve the animals for sacrifice and food now have a booming business. Christians walked away from their walk with God wholesale and made the Roman Empire boom with revenue to worship their God. They walked away from the one true Jesus Christ so they could fit in under just the ever slow, ever so slight hand of pressure from the Roman government. Now, you may say, well, Brother Goff, being persecuted and, and questioned three times and then put in prison, you're calling that a light pressure against them. When you think about what else was going to happen to them, there were other Christians that were put in the Colosseums and ripped apart by animals in front of a crowd of people, screaming at them and wishing them to die. And that you had a few Christians that were willing to say, I'll just, I'll recant, I'll recant. It was ever so slight a pressure. And they folded and they reached for the idols of Rome. All they needed was an opportunity to leave. It all starts with these words. Repeat after me is what the Roman Pliny would say. I need you to pledge allegiance unto Caesar. And they would pledge allegiance unto Caesar. Burn this incense. And they would burn this incense. Turn from your God and worship ours. And they would turn and worship their gods and fill their temples. Now I have been, and it was honestly, it was in innocence that I went to uh, the location that is in, I believe it's Nashville, Tennessee, and they have a representation of a Greek Roman temple for the uh, one of their goddesses, and it's a replication of what's over in uh, the Roman area, and it's. Exactly. And I walked in. Sister Golf and I were there. I was on a business trip. And like, hey, we see a lot of people here. Don't understand what it is. We walk in there. And I believe it was the goddess Athena. Walk in. And they had a floor-to-ceiling god. And if you've ever felt uncomfortable, it was very awkward. And as I begin to put this message together and think about this, I went into a place that the Romans over in their area worshipped one of their gods, Athena. And I begin to think, how, what had to happen in Nashville, Tennessee, that we thought we had to put the gods of the Romans in our cities, and it would be okay. And it would be called 
art. You have to be careful what you allow in your life under the guise of the labels that the world places upon it so it will slide under the radar. Before you know it, you have things in your life that you wish you could get out. You wish you could dig it down, dig it out and tear it down. But before you know it, you have a, you have a massive temple inside of your heart and you're saying, God, I don't know how to get past this. It's because it was under the guise of what the world thought was just okay. And before you knew it, you were bowing down to their God. You were drinking their drink. You were burning their incense. And you were incantations and chanting words that are not your own unto their God. And it says, pledge your allegiance to our cause. Accept our idols and you will be found quite harmless. The pressure was so light. Because you have to understand that the emperor of Rome, his name was Trajan. He told that the governor, Pliny, and says, leave the Christians alone. You don't have to pursue and persecute them. You only need to address them if it comes, the matter comes before you. This was not going door to door, kicking in doors in the middle of the night, dragging families out, as we've, as we've seen through history. This was as if it only had to be in front of Governor Pliny. Then the emperor said, now you can address the situation. He says, there's no hard and fast rule in dealing with the, pay the Christians. And this is what the historians have named this emperor, the virtuous pagan, by how gentle he was on the Christians. And yet, city after city, church after church folded over a little bit of pressure. The emperor even said, the anonymous letters, they don't mean anything. So all of the evidence that Governor Pliny had was discredited by the emperor, but he gave him the authority to deal with it if it came before him, but don't pursue him. It was that light hand that caused Christians to fill the house of idolatry once again. When I began to read this letter that had been translated into the English and so that I could read it from the Greek, my mind went to the phrase, and it's been going through my heart all day long, it is time for the church to be the church. It is time for the church to be the church. Because if you don't rise to the occasion, the world will steamroll right over you. If you don't have a backbone today, you need to get one. Mom and dad, if you don't have one for your children, you better get one. You better be a fortress at the door of your home in front of your children say, that's not going to happen in this house. I don't care what the label the world puts upon it under the guise of art or under the guise of it's accepted by everybody else. And look at the temples that are full now. Parents, I'm telling you, you better find a place with God. We need men to be men that the church needs. And women, we need women to be women that the church needs. And youth, you need to rise to the occasion. And if you don't have the Holy Ghost, God wants to give you the opportunity to step into something that will give you strength and you'll be able to draw from it and it can change your life and you can get freedom from bowing to the gods of this world that you think you can control but you really, really can't. 
they leave a mark on you. Because if you live for the performance of life, the devil will make sure you get a chance to perform. But here's the catch. He picks the cast, he picks the script, and he picks the audience. You begin to dance his dance. You begin to sing his song. You begin to bow down to his gods. He doesn't care who you bow down to as long as you worship the statehood of evil and wickedness and things that want to destroy your life. That's all he cares. All he wants you to do is say, it was just a harmless meeting on Sunday night. It was just harmless. They sang their songs. They talked about fellowship. God wants it to be so much more than that. If you live for the performance, he'll give you the opportunity. But God is getting us ready for the performance that our life was made for, and that is to worship him. It is to magnify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is not just here on earth, but that so that we are ready when that great day happens, when we hear that trump sound and the eastern skies are split open and we are called to meet him. We are with him forever worshiping and magnifying him. You will not find the things of this world where we're going. And so if you have the appetite, you need to have God reach down and help you get that from your soul and say, God, cleanse me. This opportunity the world has given for me to walk away is not worth it. You see, the Apostle John gave a clear message, giving heed to the things of the world. And the words are direct and cautionary to the reader. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. But it is of the world. You see what the writer is saying? Listen, the gods of this world are not the gods of what our Lord and Savior has called us to worship. There is nothing what they have to offer you that will fulfill your life. He goes on to say in verse 17, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. If you want to do something that's pleasing unto God for all of eternity, tonight is the first step you can take. God will place you into the family of God and place you in a place where you feel like you're a part of something bigger than you ever have before. But you have to walk away from those things. Loving the world is accepting the things of the world as your inheritance. That portion that will pass away, temporal. Just the other day, Sister Goff and I, I may have mentioned this recently, but I feel like it's fitting. We sat down and made out our will because pastor said so, right? We've seen some examples of situations that have not been handled correctly and it's put a burden on the family. I said, you know what, honey? We need to do our part. We have five children. So I sat down and made out a will. And guess what, golf kids? You're all in it. Now, I've told you many times that you weren't. Truth be told, you're in it now. Y'all have 20% of 
of the Goff estate, which ain't much, because I'm not trying to build an empire. I'm trying to build in each and every one of my children that they can serve God. I could care less about the things of this world. I don't care about the inheritance of the things of this world. That portion will pass away, yet it is what we see and gives immediate satisfaction, but it does nothing for eternity except drive us further from what God has for us. You see, in John, the reader is encouraged to take a step back and see the world through the eyes of God. Because when he looks down on the lost world and the sins of it, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Not one of those, does he says, is pleasing unto me. If you have that in your heart tonight, you are at a refuge where God can take care of that and cleanse you and make you whole and clean and pure and holy before him. You're in that house tonight. The Apostle James, it beckons the believer through that deep, grab-you-in-the-heart statement. The words are looking you straight in the eye. And if I could imagine, he's trying to shake someone at their very core. And you feel their breath upon your face as he's reading these words to you. You will be tempted. Period. Prepare your heart. Don't be surprised. It will come. James chapter 1 and verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You see, God does not place that in your heart. Bishop, you said it this morning, we're just human. You're not broken. You're not defective. So far gone that God can't reach into your heart and fix what is wrong. But he wants to use this word to place a microscope in front of you and let you see what's in your heart. Because if sin is there, Satan will make sure there are embers to catch it. And he will nurse that ember to life and he'll blow and a flame will flicker. And he will let the burning sin of this world fill your heart and you feel like this is all you could ever do. And the words you will say, it's just not the right time. It's burning too hot in my heart. I know of one thing that can put that fire out tonight. The blood of Jesus Christ. It cleanses everything. It makes you whole once again. We can talk about miracles in the physical, but what you need is a miracle in the spiritual. You need God to reach down and take away the scars of this life and heal you and put restoration in your heart. That's what he wants to do. If you find yourself standing in the pantheon and you look and there's God after God and none of them know your name, none of them hear your voice, the God that's in this house tonight knows your name. He hears your voice. He knows exactly what you need in this house tonight. God wants you to be victorious. That is the objective of you being in the house of God tonight. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And if any of you lack wisdom, let him, 
Ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. It is the patience that God can give you that will allow you to find completion, wholeness in him. But let's talk about patience for just a moment. Patience is more than just waiting. It's more than just putting in the time and saying, another minute down, 10 more minutes down. It's more than that is what God is trying to get us. It is the quality. There is a quality in not rushing. However, this passage is referring to the development of your ability to accept the perfecting process that God is doing in you. Don't rush God. It's more than just waiting. You have to be an active participant in what God is wanting to do in your life. He's not going to just make an impression on you and walk away. You have to be willing to crawl into his hands and, and say, God, I need you to work on my heart. I need you to minister to me. God, tell me things that are wrong with me. And I'm not too proud to say it was just the other day that 3 o'clock in the morning I wake up and God says, you have something in your heart you need to repent over. Oh, it was just a small thing. And I could have said, you know what? That's, that's not even a blip on the radar. But if it meant enough for God to wake me up, I knew I needed to respond, Bishop. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saved. He was taking the time to interrupt my life because something that I did not even realize. And then in that time, that quiet time, he stepped in and says, you did this. And then it was like a ton of bricks hit my heart. God, I am so sorry. And repentance came from my heart. It wasn't a repentant prayer that you may tell your children, tell your brother you're sorry. No, is I have disappointed my Savior. But I had to be willing to be a part of that perfecting process. I could have easily ignored it and said, it's not a big deal. Are you telling me that this would keep me from heaven? I believe it would have. Because God made it a point to tell me I had something in my heart that I need to repent of. So the patience is more than just the waiting. And Peter likened that perfecting patience to the process of purifying gold. He reaches out and says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7. We won't read it. But I want to point something out. The apostle Peter said it was more precious than gold. The process is similar. But the end result of you being refined is more precious than gold. Not only in value, but in the perceived beauty of you as a person, you as an individual that God is reaching for, you become more precious than gold. Because what his blood is willing to touch is so beautiful. Because it's white, it's pure, it's clean, it's holy. That's what he wants each and every one of our hearts to be. Because he wants your heart to be exclusive unto God. You can't have a side chick or a side man. 
You can't have the love of this world on the side and expect God to reach down and whisper sweet nothings to you and begin to minister to you. And, and then here you have another voice competing. God is a jealous God. He sacrificed himself on the cross of Calvary through the body of Jesus Christ and came down and dwelt among us. He is a jealous God. Because no other God's been able to do what he has done for each and every one of us. It's time for the church to act like the church. It's time for you to be the man that God has called you to be. It's time for you to be the lady that God has called you to be. He is pleading with you, I want to wash and make you clean once again. Life, to some, may seem to be a gain. But there's some gains that, if I could draw an analogy from, provide benefit. As a young child, you've heard the game, blind man's bluff. You see, the key to that game is listening. You have to be acutely aware of your surroundings for you to even be remotely successful at blind man's bluff. You see, back when the game first started centuries ago, they called it, I think it was blind man's buffeting. And that was when it was a little bit more extreme because they would put a blindfold on you and strike you and you had to find, try to figure out who it was and how to get a hold of them. And it began to become a little more friendly towards us as we become children and play the game. But the point that I want to make is, if you don't listen, you will never touch him. You have to be willing to listen in order for him to let you reach out and touch him. You have to be willing to stop doing everything that's chaos in your mind and say, God, I'm here Speak to me. You have to be willing, instead of grabbing whatever you can get your hands on and swinging wildly at life and trying to figure it out on your own, you have to be willing to say, God, here am I. I'm yours. You have to be willing to listen before you can touch him. You have to be transparent. God does not always just rip the blindfold off and throw it away. Instead, God uses the process to extract the impurities from our life. He uses tools that are available to us even in this very moment. The Word of God, that preached Word of God. Our pastor, the shepherd, to lead us. Encouragement from others. A church service just like this. And worship that we were just a part of that is carried on even in the hearts that were willing to prepare themselves. And for we must pursue after him, we will find him. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he was near. Psalms 14 and verse 2 the Lord looked down from heaven from upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. James 1 and 12, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, 
which the Lord had promised to him, to them that love him. That's a promise to each and every one of us tonight. God wants to bless you. Here's the thing. That crown of life is not a crown of your life. It's his righteousness that he wants to put upon us. That's the crown that we'll receive. It's not look at me. Everything that leads to that moment is look at him. When we get caught up in the things of our life, we lose focus of him. But he's saying if you can go through this temptation and if you can be found faithful, I will allow you to put on my righteousness. You see, the heart is raw material. Raw material. It's unfinished stock, brother self. It's that piece of material you pull off the shelf and the craftsman begins to build something. Your heart is raw material. We've heard the term smooth as glass. It infers what we're talking about is something is perfectly smooth with no perceivable imperfection through visual and touch. We reference something, and when you tell somebody, oh, the lake today was smooth as glass, they know exactly what you're talking about. When you look at something and the reflection in the mirror is absolutely pure and has depth to it, you gaze at it, and sometimes we're not so happy with what we see in reflection. But if you've ever looked through an old leaded window, you'll see that they have the warping and distortion as the glass is cured over the years, and it's not so smooth. You see, what was used to provide a looking pane to see through is something that has become distorted. But God wants to take our lives and refine them and make them in his image. So the heart is coarse. It is that raw material that God desires to perfect by his hand. You see, sometimes we don't see it. Well, in the comparison of living for God and living for the world and doing the things of the world, which is Satan's agenda, you see, life living for the world, it distresses what it touches. Life living for God perfects what it touches. If you're not happy with you, you never will be until you're serving God. If you think you can change just some minute things to make you feel better about yourself, you cannot do it on your own. Because life has that way of taking something and distressing it and poking it and cutting it. Every time that the world rubs up against you, it's always cutting and deepening and ripping wounds open again. And it's distressing your life. And it will never get any better until you're in the arms of Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt the surface of something expecting it to be smooth? And it catch you and it cut your hand wide open? It caught you by surprise. There was a time when I was a young, young lad. I don't even know the age. I'm guessing maybe six or seven and I was out at some family's house in Tanglewood area at Bonner Springs, and we were out there, and the church was praying out there 
having a uh, church family prayer at one of the saints' homes, and I was coming up the back of their patio, and it was wood. I was barefooted because I was running around outside in the grass, and I stepped, and a huge splinter went into my foot. And that splinter was massive, Bishop. It was interesting because I had to lay there and let someone get a knife and start cutting this splinter out of my foot, but it left a mark on me. It eventually put something in the bottom of my foot when I was a kid that it turned into a wart that was the size of a quarter. And the doctors would give us medicine. I put it on there, and it would just eat away. It all started because of something coarse I brushed up against, and I dealt with it for years as a small boy. You won't forget the imperfections that God removes from you, but you'll find they no longer influence your life the way that it used to. You see, when God removes that snag, that sharp area, the beauty of it is the devil no longer has something to hang sin on because God has made you clean. He's perfecting you. He's taking off those rough edges. I thank God. I know when I went down in the watery baptismal tank and was baptized in Jesus' name, I know what God forgave me from. And I'm thankful I don't, I'm not held slave and captive to those sins, but I don't want to forget where he took me from and where I am today. Don't think, well, I'm in the church and I haven't forgotten. God is letting those things reside within your heart to keep you where you're at. You're not perfect, and you have to have Him to get perfection, to strive towards Him. It's not until that day when He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of the Lord. That is when we will have attained. It's not here on earth. Don't get discouraged because you have the marks of the world that hates your soul upon your body and upon your heart. God will restore you and bring you back to something of beauty. Let him remove those snags. And sin will no longer grab a hold of it and say, I thought you had it under control. I don't have to have it. If I could say it this way. I just need to let God help me get it under control. I have to put it under the blood. I have to submit this need to him. Say, God, I can't do it on my own. If you're tired of failure in your life, let God begin to that perfecting process and smooth your heart. And you say, God, I remember when this used to hurt. It don't hurt anymore. I remember when I had that lesion on the bottom of my foot. It would hurt for me to walk. And I would have to roll my foot on the right-hand side and walk on the side of my foot because it would burst open and ooze out things and soak the sock. And I'm like, what is it going to take for this to go away? And eventually, it just went away. But you know what? It took some cutting. It took some filing. It took some attention towards that wound. If I left it by its own, it grew and it got deeper and the root got deeper and it hurt. If you're not willing to deal with the things in your heart, it will only be to the detriment of your own soul. God wants to reach into your heart tonight and take you to a place that's so special the world can't even comprehend. Temptations, oh, they're a faint memory. Because if you trust in Him, 
if you submit yourself to him and say, God, I can't do this today without you. You get up every day, say, God, I need your help with this. You know I stumble. You know when I don't talk to you, this rises up those bad behaviors. Don't become an instinct. They become a memory. And you sit there and say, I remember what I used to be. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And gratitude fills your heart instead of the deeds of Satan. And you can think, well, I can dress the part, and I can pull myself together, and I can sit on a pew, but you hate yourself because you're not happy. God wants to give you peace in your heart tonight. Because there's that special place that you must maintain and allow God to maintain in your heart. Now, if I could draw our attention to something, there's method of maintenance. There's methods, I should say, of maintenance. One method is called fix as fail. If your life is in a fix as fail maintenance program, you don't have a maintenance program. You have a task to repair. There is this fix as fail is the costliest and least effective method of maintenance. There is what they say in, um, in the world that we live in, there's mechanical maintenance that happens and there's predictive analytics that'll say this oil pressure is starting to get higher. It's been like this for 12 months and now all of a sudden it's starting to trend up. All right, we need to pull in the shop before it fails. We can say, well, this turbo pump sensor is starting to show a number that's an anomaly and it's starting to trend when we do this behavior. So we need to pull it into the shop and we need to fix it before it fails. This service is preventative maintenance, is to fix your problem before you fail. If you're willing to fix this fail, that means you're willing to walk out and say, I'm just a failure because then you're just a broken part. Because when you walk out of the church and you feel like you're broken, you're never going to get put back together in the world. It's impossible. Only Jesus can take your life and make you whole. Only his blood can wash over your life and cleanse you and make you whole again. Don't believe the lies of this devil. You will be happy. It's a lie. There's a tool that I've used, haven't used in some time, but it's in maintenance for a lead-acid battery, and it's called a hydrometer. You can go to O'Reilly and pick one up. It's nothing fancy. You can go to Walmart, most likely, automotive section, and you can pick up a hydrometer. What it is, the hydrometer will measure the specific gravity within each and every battery cell that you will pull that dielectric or the... the, the uh, the water out that's inside of that battery cell, and you pull it out, and you measure the specific gravity, and you understand if there's problems inside of that cell. You see, in most cases, in things, mechanical batteries don't run your car. They start your car. You have an alternator that runs all the things in your car. If you don't have a good battery, your vehicle will not start. That's why you can go have someone jumpstart you if you don't have a good battery, but the moment you turn it off, you're dead again. Coming to church with a dead battery is going to have the same results every time unless you allow God to reach in and say, what is in the water? You see, 
It's very telling. The water is very, very telling. Because you can measure the specific gravity of every battery. And you can go in, and I've worked on some that are massive batteries, weighing 1,500, 2,000 pounds, and they're huge packs, and they have all these individual cells. And you have to go through and find them, like 36 cells, and they all have a cap on them. And you go in, and you pull that off, and you measure the specific gravity. And if you have one that someone reports an issue, say, it won't start, you go, okay, let's go to the source, Bishop. This is a starting battery. Let's go why it's not starting. And we begin to troubleshoot the battery. Now, you can put devices on your batteries, Brother Jerry. You can take them out of your car. You can put a battery maintenance minder on it. But that is not doing anything to the internal. Some of them will repair some of the chemical um, composition that's taking place in those batteries. But if you don't get to what's inside that battery, you're just going to be judging it as a whole. The Word of God wants to go into each and every corner of your heart and wants to understand which cell is bad because when you take that hydrometer, it's a cheap, inexpensive tool, and it's a really quick check. You pull the cap off, squeeze the bulb, water comes up, the float, we're within the correct, manufactured, recommended, specific gravity for this cell. Squeeze it back in there, put the cap on, and move on. But if there's a starting problem, you will find an issue. You see, there's a natural process called sulfation. It's a natural process when acid is on lead plates that are inside of a battery. Now, I know I may be geeking off this. I'm going to transition in just a moment. I'm trying to prove a point. Sulfation, if you let it go too far, will destroy a battery. But there is a point of recovery. If you're willing to let the inspector look at the water and observe and inspect the cell you can look down and see the plates and how they're responding to that acid within that wet cell battery. It's not a state of being too far gone. You see, God's specificity leads to exclusivity. Specificity means this, the state of being specific or having a special character or relation. It's because God is specific. There's a place of exclusive protection in the kingdom of God. You can't get there on your own. You have to be brought there. You have to be brought in by his hand. He's willing, he's wooing, and he's reaching for your heart. If you're willing to be tested, God will take you to a place where he can use you, but you have to be tested. He can help you work through all the matters that you don't even feel like you want to sit down across from the table and tell not one soul. All you have to do is kneel down an altar and tell one God. The one who cares, the one who has brought you to this house tonight, he is the one who measures the man based upon the contents of the heart. And Scripture tells us that only God knows, Brother Larson, only he knows what's in your heart. I don't know. I can make observations. You can make observations about me. But only God knows. In Psalms chapter 26 in verse 2, examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Chapter 38 in verse 9, Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. 44 and 21 of Psalms, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He knows what you're going through in this very moment. 
Now it's easy. The church is viewed as a whole, a church service. But every service, God is reaching for specific hearts. You see, a battery will lose its ability to provide power if conditions are able to influence it. The cold will take its power. You know all these EV vehicles that everybody's raving about, government's trying to tell you you need to buy one? Just wait till it gets cold. A co-worker lives in Montreal, Canada, and he's got an EV motorcycle, an EV vehicle for his wife, an EV vehicle for him, and that's all he has. He does not have an internal combustion engine that all of us mostly drove through, drove to church or with a hybrid component to allow it to come. The thing is, the cold, I asked him, I said, well, how's it doing this winter? He's like, the range is terrible. I can hardly drive 100 miles because the cold saps the power. The other thing that will impact a battery is undercharging it. Another aspect of it is overcharging it. You could also discharge a battery by having it sit on the wrong surface. There must be an insulator, otherwise nature will discharge a battery, just sitting there with nothing on the terminals. You see, you can come to church and be discharged. You can go out and do your thing. Every time you bump up against something, it's taking your power away from you. If you're not willing to be tapped in, what will keep you full of the Holy Ghost? Because you have your opinions on how things should be. The world will tap against you and say, oh, I just took another volt off. Look at that. They're below 10 volts. They can't even start a vehicle. Look at them. But it looks brand new. But you're empty. Then you look on the inside. Anytime you open the top of a battery, you have to be so, so careful that you don't knock debris down in that cell. Because just the smallest piece of dirt will start that sulfation process and exponentially begin to discharge and destroy that one cell because a little bit of dirt got in that battery. Not to belabor the point, but I'll give you a prime example. When I first started working for the railroad, we had just opened a facility on Front Street. And we were all new to doing what we were doing, Bishop. We had no sense I was doing stuff that was commercial, residential, had no idea how to maintain batteries on a locomotive. There was a maintenance task that said, top off the batteries with water. Well, I had no idea what I was doing, and most of us didn't because it was a new process. And as we began to open up this brand new facility, we pulled out the water hose and turned it on, and brown water would come out. And you'd see someone standing over batteries, filling them, topping them off. And so no, they said, no, you need to let it run for a minute and let the brown water flow out because it's the corrosion of the pipe. Everything's brand new. All the joints are corroded. So let's let them purge the water and then fill it. We thought we were doing the right thing. Until several years later, a manufacturer comes to me. I transitioned out of that job. I was no longer working in that department. And they come and they say, listen, your company has a problem. I said, do tell. They said, we supply your batteries for your entire network. Your entire fleet of North America consumes our batteries. 
Here's the problem. Your batteries aren't lasting as long as everybody else's. We need to look at the process. We had to go back and find out where every drop of water came from. And guess what was highlighted? Somebody with a water hose at 3651 East Front Street in Kansas City, Missouri. When the batteries should have been lasting five to six years, ours were lasting two to three if we were lucky. Guess what that means? Locomotives don't restart. You have a mile-long train and you have all the potential to make a difference. And you couldn't even start the locomotive. It all came down to what you're putting in the battery. You may think you're okay. I thought I was signing the task off, put my name on it. If they just said, did you do it? Yes, sir, I did. Here's the piece of paper, and this is what I used. But we had to change the process. We had to take water that was purified. And then we couldn't overfill them. We had to have a device that would shut off at the exact right moment. So the water was at the right level on the cells so it wasn't too far down or too high. The Word of God is like that very same thing. You can't do this on your own. I can't do this on my own. It is the skillful handing of the Word of God that reaches down and says, this is what you need. you got to do it just like this. No, I don't care what your opinion is. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's just like this. It's not just for you, but the promise is unto you and your children, all those that are far off. That means everybody who wants to have what you have has to do it the exact same way. There will be a time when the proof will be in the water. You will be judged because there is a place called eternity. And that will be the line of determination. Did you handle the steps right? If you aren't willing to meet the specific requirements for service, if you are, then you are willing and able to be trusted. In our text, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verse 17, it says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. You see, with testing comes that place of protection that I talked about. For the sake of time, the children of Israel, they were brought to a place. They had to pass the water test before God could take them to the place that he had promised them. They were a chosen people of God, but yet they still had to pass the water test. There were kings that God says, you can't touch my people. There were armies that they were told, you cannot defeat my children unless I ordain it. In Psalms chapter 105 and verse 11 it says, saying unto thee, will I give the land of Canaan the lot of your inheritance? When they were there, but when they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. You see, when you're allowing yourself to be specific in the hands of God, allowing Him to be specific with you and say, this is what I want from you, it's a place that He's willing to take your life and say, all right, you passed the water test. I just need to do it in inspection here. Everything looks good. It's all summed up in stating that passage of Scripture is God's providence. 
His provision that is presently with us, but is an also an active foresight of the future of your life. He's saying, I'm taking you somewhere. You're here tonight, not by accident. You may say, well, it was my idea. No. You see, God won't put sin in your heart, but he will put a hunger in your heart to come see him. That's why you're here tonight. It's not an accident. So don't be so naive to think, well, I do everything within my own doing. Because God is reaching for your heart whether you want him to or not. He's always reaching. The Bible says he does not want anyone to perish. He does not want anyone to walk away from his presence. You have this beautiful opportunity to be a part of the kingdom of God, to have his blood wash over you, and you feel good. You're effective, and God can make something of your life. You see, in closing, if the musicians would come, God saw you from the very beginning, and it was not a fix-as-fail plan for your life. God has a plan for you. You see, God made a plan for the church, his bride, the called-out ones, which, was, which is who we are. And we have to be a part of that number. You see, Jesus is coming back. This is not a scare tactic. This is truth. Jesus is coming back. You see, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. I tell you, when he says he's coming back, he's coming back. He's coming back for a bride that's made themselves ready, who has adorned themselves with pure and holiness and allowed his righteousness to reach down and smooth us over and his blood to wash us. That's what he's coming back for. You see, repentance is not a place that you have to come to. Uh, you, uh, repentance is not just a place that you have to come to, but you have to visit it time and time again every day, just like I had to. Nothing super spiritual, but God took the time to reach out to this old boy, this man that's flesh, and say, you need to repent. I'm not perfect. But the Word of God, if you could hear what the preacher's saying, you must repent. Repentance is a part of the water test. You see, you think everything's okay, but the Word of God in this very moment has reached down into your heart and pulled out that hydrometer and said, let's see where you really land. There's room to improve. I can fix this. The sin's not too far. You need to get back to the source. And you need to say the words, create within me a clean heart, oh God. You see, our God has a plan for restoration. God's plan for this church, when in turn means that God has a plan for you. Because of the most sincere desire to serve Him, you have this beautiful, beautiful opportunity to be a part of the bride of Christ. In this text, the Apostle Paul is telling the church at Corinth to come out from this world. Separate yourself from the filth of this world. He says... In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, 
that should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I can testify tonight that I am one who has obtained mercy. The house of mercy is what this is, the place where God comes and wants to change your heart and draw you unto him. The church of the living God is going to heaven. In order to stay in the church, you have to be willing to pass the water test. You have to be willing to be examined. That means pride set aside. That means, oh, no, don't, don't touch that one. I know, I know what's wrong with that cell right there. I know what's wrong with that room of my heart. It's been there for a long, long time. But God wants to reach down into your heart tonight. And get you to the place where you pass the test. As we stand tonight, I'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. You see, God has a plan. He's calling each and every one of us. He's saying, I want you to look at your heart. Are you ready? Are you ready? Can you pass the water test? Is there something in your heart? Don't be too proudful. Don't just say, use me as an example. I'm a poor individual of an example. But let me tell you, if you can just lean on the example I gave, just get up and pray. Just come to an altar and begin to say, God, if there's anything, if there's anything in my heart, pass the water test. Be careful when that lid comes off, when you're bumping around in this world. It discharges you. God, do I have the power? Do I feel you the way that I need to? Can you trust in me for the kingdom of God? Can we lift our hands? Hallelujah. Mighty God, I ask you to touch Savior. Oh, Master. Only God knows the contents of your heart. I invite us, each and every one, to find us a place to pray, to be honest and transparent with our souls, and saying, God, look deep within me. God, I'm willing to sit and listen. You've called me by name in this very service, God. You've said, son, daughter, I'm calling you. Life is but a game, but God wants you to reach out to him and say, God, reach him to my heart, change me. You know what I am, God. I need you more than anything, God. I can't do this on my own. Hallelujah. As the saints begin to pray, hallelujah. There is no telling what can happen in this service tonight. Prepare me, Master. Hallelujah, hallelujah.